Hashem Hashem Naseh V'Natzliach, Shil Torah, Bukhim Abayim, we're back here on our Tuesday night, but uh, unlike the uh, Tuesday nights of the uh, past year where we uh, talked about a, uh, our, our series of uh, Jewish intimacy, tonight uh, we're not ready uh, to, to go back to that series for a couple of different reasons, but we have a very special shiur for you guys in regards to uh, witchcraft, dealing with evil, is it evil, and uh, even the uh, story that's been in the Jewish headlines regarding these uh, converts or supposable converts that uh, left Hasidut and are causing a commotion in the Jewish world. Uh, tonight's shiur is uh, going to be for the Refuah Shlema and Atzlacha Raba for uh, Rabbanit uh, Levana Bat Sarah, Arab Ephraim Ben Shulamit, Rabbanit Sarah Bat Anat, uh, Avi Mori David Ben Nesriya, Imi Morati Doris Bat Jora, and all of Am Yisrael and all the righteous Noahides that continue to uh, watch our lectures, support, and uh, donate on the uh, website and everywhere else. Uh, just as a quick reminder for everybody, please sign up. If you're going to be attending the uh, live uh, event we're going to have uh, here in uh, Florida, in South Florida, uh, on January 10th, please sign up on the uh, website bhchizuk.org. BHchizuk.org, that's B as in Be'ezrat, H as in Hashem, uh, and uh, C-H-I-Z-U-K.org. Uh, you could sign up over there. If you have any troubles uh, finding it or signing up, you could uh, simply email us at um, events at bhtorah.org, or you could just send me a message and I'll uh, send you the uh, proper information, the appropriate information for you to sign up. If you're going to be attending, I know that there's people from uh, uh, different countries even attending this event. Baruch Hashem, we had a uh, uh, very nice amount of people that are going to be showing up. So, Bezat uh, Hashem, we're looking forward to seeing all of you. Everyone that uh, comes will not only have the benefits of coming to the lecture, but there's also going to be some free giveaways as we usually do give out books, uh, USBs, different things. Bezat Hashem, by then we should have uh, copies of the new book that's going to be in English and Hebrew. Uh, uh, and also after the uh, lecture and the questions and answers, anyone that wants to uh, get a uh, blessing or a uh, quick few words of advice, uh, I'll, uh, you know, I'll be there to talk to everybody. Uh, and of course, since there are usually a lot of people that want that, uh, it usually lasts for a few hours. So the main thing that you have to have is patience. If you're in a hurry, uh, don't, uh, don't bother staying for the latter part of the lecture because it takes a while. Uh, but I uh, do my best to stay as long as I have to until everybody's questions and issues and personal uh, guidance uh, are, uh, are addressed. And Bezat Hashem, Hashem will give us the uh, health and the ability to do that uh, this time around as well. Especially since I haven't seen many of you in a very long time. So looking forward to seeing all of you. So again, sign up on bhchizuk.org. Uh, last but not least, for any of you that are living in the uh, U.S., uh, and have the uh, benefits not only of uh, being part of the mitzvot and the Kiddush Hashem that our organization is doing, but also have the uh, benefits of a tax write-off. Uh, now is the time to donate right before the end of the uh, cyclical year. Uh, so uh, please uh, help us with uh, all the amazing things that we're doing. We're actually working on a couple of Huge projects, bigger than anything we've ever done before. We're going to need a lot of help from you guys if they're actually going to work. And unlike other times, we don't have much time. The decision whether they go or they don't go is going to be made literally in the next couple of months. 
so uh, this is the type of thing that, uh, you know, we have to uh, uh, let you know that time is of the essence. So anyone that wants to help us, wants to be partners with us, uh, please uh, donate on the website, bezatashem.org, or one of the other many websites that we have, uh, whether it's YouTube or Facebook or uh, uh, BH Torah, uh, the app, and many other places, Baruch Hashem. So with that being said, uh, for those of you that have been uh, really eager to uh, get back to the Jewish Intimacy series, uh, Be'ezrat Hashem, we're going to go back to it next week, next Tuesday night, Be'ezrat Hashem. Uh, we'll be back to that series. Uh, and also for any of you that are not aware, the, um, the uh, Jewish Intimacy series that's based on the Igeret Aramban, uh, that was translated by our dear friend, who is the uh, descendant of the Ramban, uh, and that book uh, hasn't been available anywhere for uh, probably the last uh, you know year or so, uh, has now become available. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, probably about a, a few weeks ago, a month ago or so, uh, so you could buy it online on Amazon, uh, and uh, you know it's a it's called Igeret Aramban. Or if you need the link, just send me a message and I'll send you the uh, the link to go buy it. It's not from me; it's from Amazon, and it's of course from the uh, author himself. And he actually added a few major things to this particular edition, uh, aside from the translation and the corrections in the translation to the Igeret Ramban, but he also added the uh, translation of the famous debate between uh, the Ramban and uh, the, uh, the Christianity, Christian, the Christian world, the most famous Jewish-Christian debate in history that took place in Barcelona uh, nearly 750 years ago, that's also translated in there, uh, along with a few other things. So this particular edition has a few surprises in there. Uh, and Baruch uh, Hashem, we, uh, we ordered ourselves several copies, even though I already have one. Uh, it's always good to have them and uh, always good to support Sadiqim. Uh, so with that being said, the, uh, the reason why we picked the, uh, the shiur tonight, after learning together with our own very dear Rabbi Ephraim, uh, why we picked this particular topic, number one, it's very interesting, uh, where uh, many people are interested in the uh, world of witchcraft, uh, black magic, uh, and uh, you know this is something that we've spoken about in the past, uh, the, uh, the, the danger of it, the, uh, you know, the parts of it that uh, uh, you know, uh, seem similar in the Torah, but are obviously a world of difference because you could manipulate reality uh, by using holiness and not uh, impurity, but that's only if you attain an extraordinary level of uh, Torah scholarship uh, and, uh, and Kedusha. But uh, this is uh, something that interests a lot of people. Uh, so number one, it's an interesting topic. Number two, uh, the uh, world today is shocked. The Jewish world is, you know, is shocked by uh, a story that uh, has been uh, in the uh, you know in the media for the last several weeks of uh, this uh, couple of uh, people that uh, you know converted to Judaism something around five years ago or so and uh, decided uh, you know that uh, this is for them you know and uh, they uh, they lived within the uh, you know the Hasidic community I believe it was Satmer 
and uh, then, uh, you know, took on, took on the, uh, at least it seemed like, took on the, the burden of Torah by learning a lot of Torah, uh, impressing people with a, uh, the amount of Torah that they were supposedly learning. Uh, and then one day, uh, they uh, just, uh, you know, left the community, went back to the uh, uh, place that they went to, not only physically, uh, but uh, spiritually, a place of tumah, of impurity, and now publishing uh, a book about witchcraft and tarot cards and uh, black magic and all types of things, but with the appearance that this is good and this is the truth because they have now spent enough time in Judaism and have discovered uh, the truth is in uh, the idolatry that they're in. So this is, of course, shocking the uh, Jewish world. Uh, many people have, uh, you know, interviewed this clown. Uh, and the uh, reason why I call him a clown is simply because of the, uh, the behavior and the words that come out of his mouth and simply because it's, a, uh, it's important that people understand that uh, there's a lot that most people are not getting uh, about this story. Uh, because they're assuming that everything he said or everything that was said about him in regards to his Torah learning is true. Now, knowing the, uh, you know, the, the, the story a little bit uh, differently than others, where we looked behind the scenes, we've spoken to some people, we were contacted by some people, uh, some very important people within the community that asked me my opinion, we've spoken to some people and even... Uh, some people that were supposed, you know, close to them, uh, and uh, discovered that uh, in reality, the only thing that uh, he and his uh, 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 wife are uh, good at is being con men. Uh, but, uh, you know, the fact that this was a uh, ticking time bomb from the beginning uh, was very clear to anyone that has eyes, but unfortunately, the people that do have eyes were blinded by the co-conspirators, whether intentionally or unintentionally, uh, of this person. Starting with the uh, person that brought him to the Bedin and sponsored him and even was part of the, uh, the Bedin. I have no idea how they even allow such a thing to happen, but uh, this uh, clown Joseph Klokowski the uh, partner of uh, Asher Meza, Shem Reshaim Yerkev, to both of them. Uh, this Apikoros Mechalel Shabbat, as we have him on video admitting that he watches movies and does all types of forbidden things on Shabbat, he is the one that brought him to the Bedin. He is the one that, in essence, presented him. And uh, from my perspective, he is the one that pulled the wool over everybody's eyes to make this, uh, this idol worshiper witchcraft, uh, so-called mini-sorcerer uh, uh, into the community. Good evening, everybody. I'm on my way home from Monster Bash Under the Stars, which was in Vandergrift, Pennsylvania. We, uh, we enjoyed ourselves. had a nice Sabbath. Robin, I wore my Strymol and my Bekashal there uh, at the campsite most of the day until it got too hot. I changed back into a t-shirt and kept my Shabbos pants on and uh, took a nap and enjoyed it. And we walked around a little bit and driving, talking to people who were also camped out there enjoying themselves at the Monster Bash program, including what we showed in the video, Chris Yeaworth, and we talked about the blog. 
and we had some lawn chairs and a little table that we sat and we had Kiddush and we brought some amazing meals so we were able to have Cholent and Google. So, you know, yeah, it's, maybe it's not the right thing to do. But I'm not, I'm not, and the truth is I didn't wear white socks. I, I got, uh, I got uh, Pepe Hoisin that are long and was wearing Crocs, but still with a Stramo in the back of the uh, one of the light packages. I'll admit that I'm a Russian. Uh, but uh, that has yet to be addressed by anybody, uh, at least not to my knowledge, uh, because, uh, you know, no one is really talking about the sponsoring rabbi or anything like that. Uh, and of course, there's a few others that are involved as well. Uh, and, uh, and also, again, other wicked people. But the point being is, is that the Gemara teaches us, something that's impure produces impure things. When somebody comes to you and uh, they have a public track record that they are proud of doing things that are forbidden according to the Torah, forbidding according to the sages, and they're presenting something to you as if what they're presenting is good, anyone with knowledge would usually be uh, very cautious to say the least or simply run away from them. Unfortunately, many of the Chachamim that really are uh, involved in uh, serious uh, Torah, Dayanut, and so on are not really watching YouTube or, uh, or, uh, or uh, carefully monitoring some of their uh, colleagues. Uh, and uh, these types of things do happen. So I don't necessarily uh, uh, blame the other Dayanim, which from uh, what I was told, the very important Dayanim, Talmidei Chachamim, that have Yirat Shemaim, uh, I simply know for a fact that uh, this uh, Klikowski character uh, has been fooling people for years. Uh, in a, in a, he is proud of it. Though. That's the strangest part. And no one seems to, uh, you know, catch the drift here that this is something that's not going to stop he even admitted in a recent video that uh he was missing somebody for a minyan in his kehila so-called kehila uh he was missing a person for his for his minyan so he decided to, to convert some goy so now he has 10 people so you could anyone that is familiar with how real conversion works and uh alacha and uh, ashkafa and all of the necessary things that uh, you need uh, in order to uh, truly convert somebody, in order to truly convert, knows that this, uh, this type of uh, conversion obviously is problematic to say it nicely. Uh, but this same clown brought this, uh, this little mini sorcerer into the community and uh, the little sorcerer uh, didn't stop being a sorcerer. In fact, uh, he was into witchcraft uh, and uh, all types of black magic since his childhood. Uh, and in fact, uh, this also explains his uh, strange uh, decision to marry a woman that is old enough to be his grandmother, uh, over 30 years older than him, and yet I have yet to hear anybody mention the fact that he, this little sorcerer, admits that he and his wife already met when he was something like 14 or 12 years old. Uh, if you add 30 years to 14, you end up with pedophilia. But again, I don't know what they did before, when they got married, but point being is the whole thing is strange. I can tell you for sure that if you come to any normal bed dean, 
that uh, is, I guess, concerned about the community, they're always going to look at such a relationship uh, strangely. If you come to uh, most people, even outside of the Bedin, you just come to even non-Jews, and you tell them, listen, my wife is 30 years older than me, they're not going to be very accepting of it because it's strange. Okay, now, again, it doesn't mean it's forbidden, but it's strange. But when a 20-year-old comes to you with a 50-year-old woman and tells you, I want to convert, and you end up helping this person, already it shows that there's not only something strange with these two folks, there's also something strange with those that are supporting them. And then when five years later, this strange couple ends up being fakers, abandon the community, and literally overnight, overnight, go back to being complete idol worshipers, supporting and promoting Christianity, making uh, 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 pictures and all types of things of how they like to eat pig now and they're cooking pig, uh, you know, publishing a book about witchcraft. Uh, You know, again, all of this adds up as if, you know, fooled you. That's, That's in essence what it means. It means fooled you. Because there's no way that someone that learned real Torah, even for a year, forget five years, could ever get that far in such a short period of time. Now they say, oh, he says that he completed the the Talmud Bavli during this time, and he completed uh, this, and he completed that, and all I can tell you is that maybe he completed uh, writing his witchcraft book, but completing the Talmud Bavli and actually understanding and applying what any of it says, he certainly did not, uh, because the uh, reading a book uh, is not what we do in Judaism. What we do in Judaism is we study. We study and we apply. Uh, and uh, someone that uh, goes from you know, uh, saying that they completed the Talmud Bavli to being an idol worshiper literally in a matter of 24 hours, it simply does not add up. Uh, and certainly there have been people that have uh, left the path and have uh, gone from being righteous to wicked, but uh, usually it's something that takes time. Usually it's something that uh, has a, some type of uh, you know, motivation. It's not the case here. And how do I know for sure it's not the case here? Very simple, because the little sorcerer himself says that although he went into Judaism and converted, he never left the witchcraft. He never left the black magic. He never left the delusion that he thinks that he can manipulate reality. He never left that. He was doing it before he converted. He's doing it today. And guess what? He was doing it throughout the entire time that he was, in essence, viewed as a Jew. Now, this may have been something that the Bedin uh, couldn't become aware of, but the person that sponsored him should have been aware of it. And the reality is, is that there have been so many mistakes made in this particular fiasco that many people are now uh, questioning whether uh, anyone should accept converts anymore 
because these types of people give uh, the righteous people that want the truth uh, a, a black eye for, for their mistakes because they looked the religious, they acted religious, strange but religious. So he learned Torah, at least it looked like, and he said he did. So this Rabotai Yekarim was another part of the motivation of why we're saying all of this. Again, I think that, of course, accepting converts is not only something that Am Yisrael should do, but they have to do it. This is a lacha. Uh, the communities that reject uh, uh, converts, uh, whether it's for a takana or because of being cautious, are simply violating the Torah. Uh, there's no permission whatsoever to reject converts. You could be cautious. Uh, you could uh, even be stringent. Uh, as far as what it takes to convert, you know, how long they need to study and knowledge and so on. Yes, but rejecting outright is simply not something that any uh, of G'dolei Israel uh, have ever made uh, something that should become permanent. Even those that made the Takana in a Syrian community, uh, I could assure you they did not intend for it to be a permanent Takana, hence the reason why it's called a Takana. It's not supposed to be permanent. But again, the conversion world is a something that's uh, difficult and there is a lot of problems in it starting with the fact that there are many people that deal with converts without having a clue of what the torah is altogether needless to say of how to deal with people so you should know that when it comes to judaism judaism does not tolerate things that are against the torah whether it be witchcraft LGBT, uh, you know, a, uh, terrorism, you know, all of these different things that, in essence, are, uh, were not acceptable to society until the recent years, they're still not accepted in Judaism until today. And Judaism doesn't change. Why? Because Judaism is based on a Torah. Now, if you are in a sect that calls itself Judaism, but yet accepts these things that the Torah forbids, you should know you're not in Judaism. You're just in a place that calls itself Judaism. Just like, for example, Genom has several different chambers in it. One of the places is called Shtemesre Chodesh, as the Ramak told us. Shtemesre Chodesh is the name of the place. But Shtemesre Chodesh also means 12 months. It's like saying 711 means 711. Or a very famous big, you know, deli slash gas station here in America. Okay, so it's the name of a company, and it's also three digits, 711. Same thing here. Shtemesre Chodesh is a place in Geinom. Shtemesre Chodesh means 12 months. If you are at a place that accepts what the sages said is forbidden, what the Torah says is forbidden, even if it called itself Judaism, whatever it, uh, other brand it puts on itself, you should know it is not Judaism. It is something else. So with that being said, I already spilled the whole, uh, the whole surprise about witchcraft. Is it allowed? Is it not allowed? But that's, don't worry, it's not the surprise. It's not even up for discussion. Witchcraft is forbidden. As the Torah itself says, Machshefa lo There's a verse in the Torah that says, if someone is dealing with witchcraft, sorcery, 
they, according to the Torah, at the time of Moshe Rabbeinu, at the time of the Sanhedrin, the Bet HaMikdash, they would get the death penalty. Why? Witchcraft is not tolerated whatsoever in Judaism. Now, why do people go to, Jew- to, to witchcraft if it's forbidden? Now, of course, the easy explanation would be that uh, they're not religious. No, no, but I'm not talking about the not religious. I'm talking about people that are religious. They do keep Shabbat. They do, you know, dress modestly. Uh, they eat kosher. They give tzedakah. Not to the local zoo, but rather to a or- Torah organization of some kind. But yet they go to witchcraft. Witchcraft like the famous Arab woman that uh, lives in Yafo, or the people that deal with tarot cards, or read in the coffee, uh, or all types of fortune tellers, uh, all types of uh, mumbo-jumbo types of uh, uh, con men, uh, and some of them even look like they are, uh, you know, mikubalim. You know, but again, uh, the, uh, to a mikubal, I can tell you one thing for sure, uh, is not going to do the things that people that call themselves mikubalim today and charge an extraordinary amount of money uh, do. Uh, I've met a few, and uh, the behavior of the real one versus the, uh, the, the fake ones is literally such a world of difference uh, that um, it's surprising that people even fall for this trap. But again, ignorance, unfortunately, is a, uh, is a disease worse than corona, uh, or at least... The, vi- the vaccine, or, or at least the corona. I'm not sure which one was worse. Anyway, witchcraft, Rabotai, is forbidden. There's no permission for witchcraft. There is something called Kabbalah Ma'asit. Kabbalah Ma'asit is using different teachings from the Kabbalah, which is part of the mystical aspects of the Torah, in order to elevate your soul elevate reality, do all types of things. Kabbalah Ma'asid can even manipulate nature. I know someone that can manipulate metal uh, at ease, just like you can eat cereal. He can manipulate the spoon that's for metal and bend it and do whatever he wants with it. Uh, then there's all types of interesting people. But again, these are not things that you use just for, for, for entertainment. It's not uh, something that uh, is uh, to be messed with. But the point being is, is that there are mikubalim out there, there are very holy people out there. Generally speaking, most of them do not see uh, the public. They do not even disclose this to the public. There's just, you know, few people that they know that they usually tell this to or their students, uh, you know, maybe perhaps even uh, some parts of their own family don't know. Either way, the to get yourself to a point of being able to uh, practice Kabbalah Ma'asit, means that you have a command, an expertise over all of the foundational principles of the Torah and teachings of the Torah, meaning you have a complete command over the Shas Bavli, Shas Yerushalmi, Shulchan Aruch, the Puskim, uh, the Tanakh, uh, you know, of course, the, uh, the Zohar, and a lot of other things that most people are most likely uh, in, unaware that they even exist, needless to say, have read them. Now, if somebody is out there and says... Uh, that they teach Kabbalah publicly, like on YouTube or something like that, you should know that 
if they are an honest person, all they're teaching you are things that are like midrashim, stories within the Zohar or other Kabbalistic books that you're allowed to uh, talk about, you know, stories about the weekly parasha, stories about tzaddikim, things like that, no problem. Maybe even different aspects of uh, Kabbalah that are uh, very uh, fundamental, like different parts of the neshama. Those things are usually not a, uh, uh, so difficult to learn, needless to say, to teach. But if they're telling you they're going to teach you secret parts of the Kabbalah and the root of the Neshama and all types of things that are, in essence, the, uh, the higher level of teachings, either they are a liar or they are a liar. Why? Because you don't teach Kabbalah publicly and anyone that actually says he does is a liar. Uh, now, now, you would say, wait, maybe they're a, a wicked Kabbalist. No such thing. Those are things. There are certain people that know Kabbalah that be, have become wicked throughout history, like Shabtai Tzvi uh, and, uh, and, his, and his, some of his students. But again, it's a uh, it's not it's not something that is even teachable uh, to the average person out there because they, they wouldn't know what to do with it. Anyone that even learned a little bit of it would know they wouldn't know what, what people wouldn't know what to do with the information you would teach them, even if you would simply teach them the simplest name they wouldn't know what to do with it so again people that say that they teach it are usually uh very good con men now back to our issue at hand witchcraft going to forbidden places such as these uh sorcerers tarot cards you know psychics psychos uh understanding evil why do people do it the short of it is that people are looking for a shortcut they have some type of problem, they have some type of desire, and they want a quick solution. They want a quick solution. Now, if a person comes to a Talmud Chacham, they come to a true Torah scholar, they're going to find out really quickly that nothing has a quick solution. Anything that's quick is usually bad. It's usually forbidden. Nothing has a quick solution. Someone got sick, you want a quick solution. Someone lost their money, you want a quick solution. All of these types of things that people come, they want a quick solution. There is no quick solution. Even the Kabbalistic, the real Kabbalistic tikkunim are very arduous, to say the least. Very difficult take an enormous amount of effort and, 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 and time. And generally speaking, if the average person out there was even made familiar with the process of any one of the real tikkunim, they would simply realize there is no shortcut in Judaism. Anything that's introduced to you as a shortcut, it's usually a long cut. What do I mean by long cut? It could usually create more problems than good. Now, as I've said in the uh, recent months and over the years, there are times that people come to me for questions. Hashem, every day we have hundreds of questions. There are also times where people come to me looking for a quick solution. Someone got sick. Someone lost their money. Someone's looking for a zivug. Someone is uh, looking for a divorce. You know, all types of uh, you know, interesting uh, requests that people have. And uh, I try to guide them to the best of my ability. Of course, always under the guidance of my rabbi, Rabbi Ephraim. Uh, but, of course, 
sometimes people don't really want the answer. They simply want a solution. So they say, can you just like, you know, speak to a Kabbalist and he'll fix it? Or can I just pay this person and they'll do it? Can you just cure cancer for me or cure, uh, you know, this problem for me? And the reality is that when you give them uh, the, uh, the answer that uh, even if uh, we were to help, uh, we were to do something uh, for you or for your loved one, it wouldn't work unless there was a some type of big mitzvah connected to it, fueling it. Meaning, it, the change can or in the tikkun cannot just be on the uh, you know the, the the so-called tzaddik's hands. The person involved has to be in, you know, involved in the actual tikkun itself, and that's where. People don't, you know, back away and they go look elsewhere for someone else that could sell, you know, that could sell them, you know, the, uh, the Golden Gate Bridge, uh, you know, perhaps a higher price, but a bigger promise. Of course, they end up with nothing other than bitterness and disappointment. But needless to say, there are constantly people looking for a quick solution, whether it's the request that I get from people, oh, Rabbi, how can I make a quick 10,000 this month? Uh, you know, or, or, or Rabbi, how could I, uh, you know, I have a loved one that uh, is uh, on their deathbed right now, uh, and uh, how could I just fix it? Well, I mean, God is not limited, so he could fix it. The fact that God is not limited does not mean that he needs to fix it. And Lehavdil, but it's the same uh, attitude that people have towards, let's say, rich people, where they say, oh yeah, listen, he's a billionaire, he's a millionaire, so why wouldn't he give me $100,000? Just because someone has the ability to do something doesn't mean that they'll do it. So putting all of this as so-called like the introduction, and in essence, addressing the foolishness that usually surrounds these issues, we're going to go into the Holy Torah and learn from stories from the Zohar Kadosh, from the Gemara, from the Chumash, that will give us a little bit of, I guess, information. Information that could help us arrive at a better understanding of how to apply it to today when it comes to dealing with evil, understanding evil, rationalizing it. Is it truly evil? Is it wickedness? Is it ignorance? And Be'ezot Hashem, we will succeed. In this week's parasha, we see that after Yaakov Avinu leaves this world, the Egyptians embalm him and use a process that is unavailable to us 3,000 years later, 3,500 years later, uh, where uh, they're able to preserve Yaakov Avinu's body for 40 days without any problem whatsoever. This was very normal for them. And uh, of course, there is a uh, some that say, wait, are they using witchcraft? Because the, uh, the Gemara says that 10 uh, levels of uh, witchcraft were given to the world and nine of them were given to the Egyptians, as we'll learn uh, in the next couple of weeks during the 10 plagues that uh, uh, Akadosh Baruch brought to the world through Moshe Rabbeinu, 
one of the uh, one of the big obstacles at first was to show people that Akadosh Baruch Hu is much more powerful than the sorcerers or necromancers that uh, were uh, very common in Egypt that were working for Paro. They were also able to turn a stick into a snake or alligator even. Uh, they were also able to manipulate reality. Sorcery, witchcraft, whichever one you choose to, to call it, uh, is, uh, was very common. was very common. Now, the key here is to understand is that there is discussions about witchcraft and sorcery all over the Torah. The sages dealt with this. The sages fought against this. And of course, the sages were also aware of it. Because in order to judge a sorcerer or a witch, you had to know witchcraft and sorcery. So, here we'll see that the sages will, that are in the Zohar discussing this in one of the stories also clarify something about wait a minute if you are not allowed to be a witch but at the same time you have to be to be part of the Sanhedrin you need to know witchcraft how does that work how does that work and Bezad Hashem will address that too now first and foremost when it comes to the Zohar Kadosh, as uh, somebody said in my uh, Hebrew shiur earlier uh, this afternoon uh, that I did together with uh, Maurice Verabi, Rabbi Ephraim, uh, somebody said, listen, I don't, uh, I don't agree with the Zohar, uh, I don't think it's real, and he was part of the cult of, uh, of, of ignorant, arrogant people that uh, assumes that they uh, know more than the sages and more than Gdolei Israel by, uh, you know, of course, mentioning all types of things they read on some pod, uh, some podcast or some uh, blog or, or heard from some podcast of how, you know, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai was not really the author and uh, look, there's a rabbi from uh, Yemen that says it's not this and it's not that. The Zohar Kadosh was reviewed, studied, and toiled over by Gdolei Israel, whether it's the Rav Ovadia Yosef, or it's Rav Yashiv's grandfather, Leshem, or it's Rav Kaduri, the Benishchai, countless Gdolei Israel, you know, not only studied it, vouched for it as holy Torah. So, the giants among Am Yisrael studied and taught and encouraged others to study the Zohar. But yet, you, little ice cream cone, come here and say, no, 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 it's not real. When you have yourself have not even completed the Chumash with commentary. You haven't completed the Shas Mishnayot like the 12-year-old kids did at our recent event in Israel. You haven't completed the Shas Bavli, like some of the 16-year-old students that we have. You haven't completed anything in your life, but you assume that just because you read a 10-page uh, uh, article by some guy who probably doesn't even keep Shabbat, you uh, decided that uh, you know more than G'dolei Israel, the giants, sages among Am Yisrael. 
So anytime you discuss the Zohar, you're always going to have one of those people that say these foolish things. So again, since we already started with addressing the, uh, the elephant brains in the room, we're going to add that to it. Furthermore, going into the Torah, we go into the Zohar Kadosh in Parashat Tazriah, page 51a. Here, the Zohar teaches about what happened with Gehazi. Gehazi was the servant, the Gabai of Elisha Navi, who lied and desecrated the name of God in such a big way that the Gemara in Masechet Sanhedrin, page 90a, says that he lost his share of the world to come. The short version of the story is, aside from all of the other sins that Gehazi did, whether it was immorality or uh, withholding uh, Torah students from learning Torah or lying and false vows, the biggest thing was the fact that uh, he um, lied to his rabbi, to Elisha Navi, when Naaman, the general of the uh, army of Aram, who had Sarat, the famous biblical disease that there's still a hospital in Yerushalayim for people that have Tzarat as it's incurable uh, with anything, uh, you know, with any medicine of this world. It's a spiritual disease that also has physical implications. And when Naaman came with Tzarat and was cured miraculously, by following the uh, guidance of Elisha Navi, by going and dipping into the Jordan River. This, of course, was a big Kiddush Hashem. This was completely miraculous. It had nothing to do with the water. It had to do with him humbling himself and listening to the Da'at Torah, to the opinion of the Torah. After this, Naaman wanted to convert to Judaism and wanted to convince his entire nation to convert to Judaism. And... That's what he was planning to do. After getting cured, he also wanted to give an enormous amount of money and anything else that Elisha would ask for. But Elisha rejected everything, saying to him that he's not looking for money, power, or anything else. He's happy that he was able to help him and to sanctify God's name. And that's it. He wanted nothing in return. Naaman was so happy about this that he was ready to convert himself and his entire nation to Judaism. But Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, chased after Naaman and asked him for money, clothing, and all types of things in the name of Elisha. Seeing that Elisha was you know too humble to ask directly but surely he would need something from you he, uh, he is requesting and he sent me and when uh, uh, Elisha found this out he cursed Gehazi with a curse that lasts until this day as the verse in the book of Kings 2, chapter 5, verse 27 says, Tzarat Naaman, 
תדבקך, תדבק בך וזרעך לעולם. את הצרה טוב נעמן will cleave onto you and your descendants forever. That's the background of the Zohar. Why did he curse him that way? Because he made Chilul Hashem. After this, Naaman, although still impressed by Elisha, the prophet, he no longer wanted to convert. He, wanted, he decided to become a righteous Noahite, which means that Gehazi stopped not just one person and his family from converting to Judaism, but an entire people, millions of people from converting to Judaism, from becoming Torah scholars, from becoming something that sanctifies HaKadosh Baruch Hu's name, unlike anything else. And therefore, Elisha cursed uh, Gehazi with this horrible curse. And the Torah says that Gehazi on the spot became white and his children also had sarat. All of them had sarat. In fact, any of his descendants that are still alive today would still have tzarat. As Rabbi Ephraim said today, I'm sure that if any of Gehazi's descendants are alive today, they're in that hospital in Yerushalayim have tzarat. Why? This was a curse that has no end in this world. So the Zohar asks in the name of Rabbi Yehuda, who asks Rabbi Yitzchak the question that you're probably asking. We understand that Gehazi did something terrible. But why curse his kids? What did they do? Why were Gehazi's children cursed too? Says Rabbi Yitzchak, Elisha the prophet saw a level of prophecy unlike any other in his generation. He saw prophecy beyond the norm, let's see if there is a norm in prophecy. And he was able to see all of the descendants that would come out of Gehazi until the end of times, and he confirmed that not a single descendant of Gehazi would ever be a righteous person. And it's therefore better that these descendants have tzarat. Why? Rabbi Ephraim gave a perfect explanation for this. He said in one of the videos, it was live, like we have, usually on TikTok and Facebook, there's always a couple of terrorists there that are spiritual terrorists, but once in a while there's literally real-life terrorists, especially since October 7th. So these Muslims come and they curse and they promise they're going to kill people and they do all types of things. And in one of his uh, lectures, there was somebody like this that was making awful remarks, threats, and one of the Jewish people that was listening made a comment also, why don't you block him? Why don't you block this terrorist? And Rabbi Freiman, in his extraordinary wisdom, says, why should I block him? 
Why should I block him? I don't care about what he says about me and the cursing and the insult and so on. In fact, I'm happy that he's here. Why? Because if he's here busy cursing me on the internet and being a terrorist on the internet, at least he's not a terrorist in the street killing our people. It's better he's here than being on the streets joining Hamas or working for Hamas as he has his his whole life since uh, he was five years old. It's better. Same concept here. Elisha Anavi saw the descendants of Gehazi and saw that not a single one of them will be righteous. In fact, they're all going to be problematic people. And therefore, he said, it's better that they have tzarat. And therefore, because of tzarat, they are not part of society. Not part of the Jewish society. They're in outside of the camp. They're in special hospitals and so on. Furthermore, Elisha said to Gehazi, I was rewarded a double reward as I requested from Eliyahu Anavi to give me double the amount of miracles that he was able to perform. And I was rewarded that. Why? Because I was a servant of Eliyahu Anavi. And I did my job with full honesty and sacrifice. But you, Rasha Gehazi, you hurt me because you lied to me and served dishonestly, making false vows. And therefore, you'll be punished severely in this world with this tzarat and his descendants having tzarat. in order for you to eventually have Olam Abba. Why? Because even though he served them with lies, there were parts of his servitude that were good, that actually helped Elisha study Torah, that helped Elisha serve Hashem. That part of the servitude, let it not go to waste, will use that to give you an entrance to Olam Abba. But that means you'll have to get an enormous punishment first. First, you should know that this actually conflicts with the opinion in the Gemara Masechet Sanhedrin that says that Gehazi does not have a share of the world to come. Or at least the intent of Elisha would conflict with what the sages said of Gehazi even having a share of the world to come. They say he doesn't. Of course, we always go with the Gemara, but the point being is we see the intentions of the righteous Elisha, even though Gehazi was wicked and evil, he still had mercy on this person by without changing the Torah. Rather by saying, you deserve an extraordinary punishment for making a false vow. As the Torah says, somebody makes a false vow, loses Allah Abba. But in order to get that, you'll have to, in order to get that Olam Abba back and have a chance of getting Olam Abba back, you'll have to suffer an extraordinary suffering in this world. And of course, Geinom, Kafakela, all the other stuff, but eventually still have a ticket to Olam Abba that will ultimately allow you in whenever that sentence is over. So instead of it never ending, the punishment never ending. So we see still without changing the Torah, you can still show mercy. 
There is a punishment necessary, but there's still mercy at the end. The Zohar Kadosh continues from here, same page 51a, and mentions other stories that happen with Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Yitzchak. Where Rabbi Yitzchak would often go to visit his father's house and one day he uh, as he's on his way to his father's house he sees a uh, a man resting on the side of the road he's carrying a bunch of wood and when he's resting the wood stays on top of him you know, usually you rest if you're carrying something, especially if it's something heavy, you put the wood down. But this guy was strange. He was resting, but the wood was still on top of him. And then this strange man got up with the wood still on his shoulders and started going on his way in a hurry. And Rabbi Yitzchak asked him, why don't you take off the wood off your shoulders? But the strange man did not respond to him and hurried away, going towards a cave. And Rabbi Yitzchak followed him. As he goes into the cave, Rabbi Yitzchak sees him from a distance, but he went into the cave as well. Not recommended, by the way. And you'll find out shortly why. He sees that there's a pillar of fire inside the cave coming up. And then this man disappears into one of the secret compartments in that cave and he's gone and Rabbi Yitzchak comes out to the entrance of the cave and sits over there shortly later Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Chizkiah are also on the road and Rabbi Yitzchak sees them and he goes towards them and he sees his colleagues, Talmidei Chachamim, Gedolei Israel, and he tells them what happened, how he saw this strange man carrying the wood, not putting it down, goes in a cave, fire comes out, the guy disappears, so on and so forth. And to his surprise, Rabbi Yehuda says to him, Baruch Hashem, that Hashem saved you, because this cave belongs to the Metzoraim, meaning the people that have tzara'at from the city of Saronia were all dealing with witchcraft that they learned from the elders from the desert as young as 10 years old. And they do all of their witchcraft in this cave. God saved you from, from going and, and not, them not hurting you. He tells them about how he knows and how they do their witchcraft. Fine. Now all three of them, Rabbi Yitzchak, Rabbi Yehuda, and Rabbi Chizkiah, are all walking together on the road, not far from this cave, and they see a Jewish man with a donkey, and he has a young his son, tied to the donkey not riding the donkey he's tied to the donkey 
And they go up to this man, they say, who are you? And why is your son tied to the donkey? If he wants to ride the donkey, needs to ride the donkey, fine. But why is he tied to the donkey? You don't tie people to the donkey. And the man says to them, I am a Jew. And my son used to learn Torah. He would come home to visit me. And I moved into a house, a new house over the last three years. Where I saw there was no problem there. Until one day when my son came, all of a sudden some demon, some mazik, some spirit, ran into him in the house, and his face, arms, and body all became crooked, and he hasn't been able to talk since then. So where are you going now? You know, his, his son, you know, and today, if something like this would happen, they would, you know, call it a stroke, they would call it, uh, you know, I don't know, some type of syndrome. But in those days, they knew this was a demon. This was some type of dibuk. Where a spirit enters the body of a person. So he said, okay, so where are you going now? He says, I'm now going to the sorcerers of the city of Saronia. The same people from the cave. I'm going to see the sorcerers from the city of Saronia so they could teach me how to cure my son. In so many words, this ignorant Jew has three three giant sages that could resurrect the dead with their holiness in front of him but instead of asking him for a blessing asking him for what he should do what does he do no no i'm going to the witches to the sorcerers of the city of saronia so they could teach my son who learned torah a little bit teach me how to get this how to fix this problem of a demon Rabbi Yudah asks him, this house that you moved into over the last three years, do you know perhaps the history of this house, if anybody else ever got hurt in this house? And the Jew says, yeah, some people say that there are others that got hurt in this house, but I've been living there for three years and nothing has happened. Nothing bad has happened except this one thing. So I'm sure that's not the reason. It's not the house. Abiyudah says to him, the three years without damage proof that you bring is meaningless. As these demons only damage from time to time. They don't just damage every single day, whoever they see, whenever they see it. They pick their spots. And you should not be living there. For our sages have taught us that this is dangerous. And woe to those who ignore our sages. And Rabbi Yudah says, a chidush about the verse in the Jeremiah chapter 22 verse 3, where it says, woe to the one who builds a house without righteousness. He says, now we see, this means that woe to the person who builds a house 
but doesn't invite the Shekhinah there, the Shekhinah of Hashem to the house, to rest there. Why? Because if he doesn't invite the Shekhinah, as soon as he moves to a house, he should say, this is the place that the Shekhinah should be in. It's welcome here to be here at all times. Instead of saying that, he doesn't say anything. What's the problem with that? He says, if he doesn't invite the Shekhinah to rest in his house, then he doesn't realize that if the Shekhinah was there, then all of the Samech Mem, the Sitra Achra, the Yetzirah and all of his soldiers are afraid of the Shekhinah. They don't want to be anywhere near the Shekhinah. They would run away from such a place. They wouldn't go there. But if he didn't invite the Shekhinah, then all of these evil powers of the Sitra Achra will end up resting there instead. And now, the Shekhinah can't come there. So then one of the other sages says to uh, Rabbi Yudah, wait a minute, are you saying that the Shekhinah and the Sitra Achra, the powers of evil, are in the same powers? He goes, no. It's not that they have the uh, same powers. Is that once the Sitra Achra enters a place and rests there, the Shekhinah doesn't want to go there anymore. Not because it can't destroy it or defeat it or remove it. No, but simply the Shekhinah doesn't want to be any place that's full of that filth or was ever full of that filth to begin with. Doesn't want to go there. It's not for me. He says we learn this also from the prophet Jeremiah. Woe to the person who builds a house without righteousness. And then he tells the Jew, back to this Jew that's in front of them, as they're having this Torah discussion, they go, the Jew is there with his son tied to the donkey. They go back to the Jew and say, listen, and you, you that is living in a house that's forbidden, you're not allowed to live in this house, you're also forbidden from going to that cave. Because these evil sorcerers can kill your son, not help you. They can kill your son for their own benefits. What does the Jew do? Ignores the rabbis. Ah, come on, you guys, what do you guys want me to do? Tshuva, change, learn Torah every day, do all these things. Nah, come on, it's too much. What do you want my wife to be modest now? Cover her hair, learn Torah every day, contribute to Kiruv. No, that's too much. I'm going for a quick fix. I'm going to the sorcerer. I'm going to the psychopath, the psychic, the tarot cards, the coffee reader, the little uh, moon chaser. I'm going to those people. I'm going to the uh, to these uh, to these types of people, and they're gonna give me a quick fix. They're gonna tell me one, two, three, make a soup, put some carrots in it, pretend like it's uh, it means anything, and <laughs> fix the problem. He ignores Gdole Israel, and he goes on his way. He goes on his way. 
Rabbi Yitzchak says, let's go follow him. Let's go follow him. Well, actually, I'm sorry. Rabbi Yudah says, let's, uh, maybe we should follow him. So that way we could see what these sorcerers do. Because we need to know anyway how to judge them, what is, what isn't sorcery. Rabbi Yitzhak says, no, we're forbidden from going with him to even to look. Why? Because we must stay away from Tum'ah. We must stay away from this Tum'ah. Cannot be part of this impurity. So say, wait a minute, hold on a second. If you're saying this is Tum'ah, this impurity, okay, maybe we can't touch anything, do what they do, but why can't we go? Can't go? Is it, uh, you're, it's not like idolatry. He says, no, it is idolatry. It is idolatry. And as the Gemara in Maseret Psachim, page 25a says, in the name of Rabbi Yaakov, who says in the name of Rabbi Yochanan, that a person may be healed with any substance, even things that are forbidden to use, like for example, pig. If pig will cure you from your ailment, you can use it. If you have a life risk, no problem. If you need to eat pig, you need to eat shrimp, no problem. That's going to cure you. Except, the wood of the Asherah. What's the case here? What do you mean that? Why not? It says because this, this is benefiting from idol worship. Benefiting from idol worship is forbidden according to all opinions in every condition. Meaning, even if you're sick and your life is on the line, that if you don't take a certain ben- a, 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 a pill, you don't uh, do something, you don't get a cure, you're going to die? Everything else is allowed to you to save your life because the Torah tells you to live by the Torah, not to die, except if it has to do with idol worship. If it's idol worship, it's forbidden, it's better you die and not benefit from idol worship. And the Gemara in Masechet Pesachin over there goes and gives other examples of other things that are forbidden to the extent where one must die and not sin. Such as if somebody tells you either kill this person or I kill you, you have to die. You can't kill this other person. Unless you're killing somebody for self-defense. But if somebody tells you, either kill somebody or I kill you, you have to die. If somebody tells you, commit adultery or I kill you, you have to die. Meaning, not only is it forbidden to cheat on your wife, Not only is it forbidden to cheat on your husband, but in fact, it's forbidden to such an extent that it's better you die 
then cheat on your husband or wife according to the Torah. Not only is it forbidden to commit immorality, but the Torah says it's better a person die and not commit immorality. Whether it be LGBT, animalistic, beastie, all the distorted crazies, the Torah says, has no right to exist. So here, Rabbi Yitzchak says, this witchcraft is idol worship. And it's forbidden for us to even go watch it. And the other sages say, oh, if that's that Torah, we're not going to be like uh, this Jew with his son and not listen. If you're saying we're not allowed, we're not allowed even though it's interesting, even though we're not planning on you know, doing it or we, there's no chance of us you know, becoming sorcerers anytime soon. We're just looking there to study for the sake of Torah, meaning to study this in order to know what's allowed, what's not allowed, in order to know how to evaluate evil. But you're saying it's not allowed to even do that because it's idol worship? No problem. We're not going. Shortly thereafter, these Chachamim are still on the road and they see the man again. But this time, his son that's tied to the donkey is dead. And burned. And he cries to them and he says to them, What happened? He says, I got to the cave. I got to the cave. And I brought my son in there. Because they told me they could help me. And then as I went back to go tie my donkey, so he doesn't run away. As I return back, I see that they elevated some type of fire and burned my son alive. Why? They're evil. Simple. They have some type of benefit out of creating death. They burn the kid. And that's it. Now, in today's world, when somebody dies, immediately, everyone feels bad. And the people that are kiss-ups that pretend to be rabbis will say, oh, he is in heaven right now. He uh, died on Kiddush Hashem. Automatically, everyone that dies is Kiddush Hashem. What, there was a terrorist attack? Yeah, he, he died. Oh, it's Kiddush Hashem. How is that Kiddush Hashem exactly? No one knows. Not even the Rambam. They gave clarification of what Kiddush Hashem is. But apparently everyone that dies today is a Kiddush Hashem. At least according to people that like donations. And let donations become their Mara uh, Atra, their rabbi. Reality is there's no Kiddush Hashem there. Just because a terrorist killed you doesn't mean you died on Kiddush Hashem. If you died defending the Torah, that's Kiddush Hashem. But anyway, here, in the world of Torah, 
where you look at the Zohar, you look at the Gemara, you look at Shulchan Aruch, you look at the Rambam, you look at Gdolei Israel, you're not going to find any of this nonsense. What are you going to find? What the appropriate response is to this father who is now dealing with a dead son. What does he say to him? Says Rabbi Yitzchak to this father, Baruch Hashem, Arachaman, Asher kol maasav emet, Vedrachav bedin. Blessed is Hashem, the merciful, that all of his deeds are the truth and his ways of judgment. Meaning, you made a sin by ignoring Da Torah. God punished you by killing your son. The worst punishment that you could have in this world is Shemachem, dead kids during your lifetime. You ignored Da Torah. Now you have the suffering of a dead son. That's righteousness of God. Why? You went against the Torah. God punished you. Baruch Hashem. And he says, and praiseworthy are the tzaddikim, referring to the three tzaddikim, but especially the two that listened to Da'at Torah, where he said, we're not allowed to go to that cave. Why? Because it's idol worship. Even though it's interesting, even though we can learn something from there, even for our benefit, even for the benefit of Klal Yisrael and all types of other things, you could rationalize it. Forbidden. He says, praiseworthy are the tzaddikim that go in the path of truth. You go with Da Torah, you go with the opinion of the Torah, you're always going to be on the path of truth, even though it looks like a bumpy road. It leads to a good destination. You go with a different dot, even if it looks smooth, it's a dead end. It's a dead end. Now, why did these sorcerers kill the kid? Because they're evil. That's the reason. Witchcraft is evil and it does whatever it sees fit for their own interest without any mercy or concern for what's in the interest of other people that's why Torah says in multiple places someone that was caught as a witch Practicing witchcraft, the time of the Sanhedrin would receive the death penalty. No prison sentence, no excommunication, no ban, no rebuke, death sentence. Now, how does this affect our world today? everything we've learned. Well, first and foremost, the first thing that we see when we compare the first story of Elisha and Avi to these second story with these sorcerers from this cave, 
from the city of Saronia, we see the difference between the righteous and the wicked and how they deal with life on the side of the witchcraft the fact that the kid was with his father the father was suffering he wants to heal his kid he needs their help he's willing to pay them he came all the way there made a sacrifice whatever it is doesn't matter why it's more in their interest to kill these kid than it is to keep him alive why that's the reason they're evil people sometimes ask well how come these uh, guys pretending to be a kabbalist or pretending to be righteous but he uh, he really isn't because he's evil that's the reason yeah but doesn't he care about how people have a lot of faith in him and they give him a lot of money and and they really think that he's going to bring a cure no he doesn't care she doesn't care why because it's evil that's the reason they don't care on the other hand the righteous elisha elisha the prophet even though gehazi lied and cheated and committed all types of heinous crimes against god against the torah against his rabbi elisha elisha couldn't eliminate the punishment a punishment must be given but i'm gonna pray that it's given to you in this world so that way at some point the enormous suffering for your body and soul will suffer will be enough to pay for this crime so you could have a share of the world to come where the suffering will eventually end even though you're wicked even though you're a shah even though you're a liar still there is something good that you did and therefore I pray for you we see here first thing first logic an ideology of the righteous versus the wicked secondly for those people that are looking for shortcuts whether it's by going to some fortune teller or some person that says that he speaks to god or he speaks to angels or maybe he speaks to mice and rats not really sure who people speak to anymore speaks to the dead can't have a conversation with the living but he's personally friendly with the dead all of these strange types of people know this most of the time it's fake it's con men it's liars which means you're wasting your time you're wasting your money and you're making a sin which you'll have to go to Gehenom for maybe Kafakela perhaps even your Chibuta Keva will be lengthened as a result of this even if it's fake even if it's fake in the case that it's real that he really can speak to the dead you know understand the mouse read through the cards read the stars all of this mumbo jumbo that they have make a soup and somehow tell the future through it read the coffee read your hand all this nonsense all of this witchcraft if it's real it's using kohot atuma it's using the powers of impurity 
and is forbidden 100%. Which means, even if they're able to help you in some way or another, you should know that the price that you will pay for that help is so dear, you will regret the day that you met them, you'll regret the day that you were born. I know firsthand of a person that went and got blessings, or at least what seemed to be blessings, by going to some type of fortune teller, if you will, that helped him make money, helped him do all types of things in the world. No, it's not me. Don't worry. I didn't go. I never went to any of these people. But this person went to this psychic on a regular basis. And in the beginning, he saw blessings. All of a sudden, his businesses are flourishing. Investments are flourishing. He's picking good investments. Everything is working. Until everything collapsed. But collapsed in a way that literally made his, made his uh, you know, neighbors that were paying rent or tenants that were paying rent rich next to him. In another case, a woman that was involved in this type of witchcraft saw blessings in the beginning. She made money. She got all types of things. But then she started getting one curse after another to the point where she had to have a life-saving surgery and poverty for, I think, something like 10 years, 12 years, getting thrown out of houses, suffering endlessly for years. Why? Witchcraft is forbidden, Rabotai. It cannot be allowed to live. And those that make it on purpose or accidental are making a mistake of their life nonetheless. Making a mistake of their life. Because they're trying to manipulate the natural order while ignoring the instructions of the Torah. In so many words, they're looking for a shortcut to get whatever they want. Now you would say, well, if it's so bad, why did God allow it? Why did God give it to people? Because you have free choice. You have the choice to be good or evil. If the only choice was for you to be good, that would not make you good because that would be the only choice. But if there's a choice to be good or evil, and you choose to be good, you thereby deserve the reward that comes to those that choose good. You choose evil rather than good. It's just to punish you for choosing evil. The amount of impurity that's connected to witchcraft 
is not something that I can quantify in words. But I could try to explain it to you. There are certain sins where if let's say, for example, somebody eats, a Jew eats non-kosher. This is something that creates an evil spirit, like all sins create evil spirits. This affects his soul or her soul and their ability to understand Torah. But if they stop eating non-kosher, they do tshuva for it, it's easily fixable because your blood is constantly renewed and your soul has the chance to do tshuva without having any type of spiritual um, withdrawal that's connected to non-kosher food. If somebody steals, they created mazik, a demon of some kind, obviously it's a sin, but if they stop and they do tshuva and they're on the path of returning everything that they stole, and they commit to not stealing anymore, and they learn about the, you know, the, 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 uh, the forbidden act of stealing in order to know how to stay away from it and even encourage others to do it, then whatever damage that they did to their soul is easily fixable. But if a person commits some source of witchcraft. They are now connecting themselves to the world of Mezikim, to the world of Tuma. They're cleaving their soul to the world of impurity. They're surrounding themselves with impurity at all times, and not just during the times where they are performing witchcraft, or even listening to it where somebody else is helping them, or supposedly helping them, reading their cars, their coffee, and all the other nonsense. They're now connecting their soul to witchcraft and the powers of impurity, the powers of evil. And this Rabotai is not something that just goes away they have now connected themselves to the impurity of idolatry. They have connected themselves to the source of all impurity. And now they have put themselves in a situation where even if they want to stop, they're no longer going to go to the tarot card reader. They're no longer going to go to the psychic. They're no longer going to take blood out of their body in order to perform all types of Satanism or waste seed for the sake of Satanism or all types of other things that are connected to witchcraft. They're no longer going to play with the Ouija board. They're no longer going to do any of these things that are in the world of, are standard in the world of witchcraft. Even though they want to abandon it and even though they want to come to a Shul Torah and even though they want to say, I'm sorry to a Kadosh Baruch Hu, It doesn't just go away just like that. Why? You've cleaved onto impurity. You're going to have to uncleave 
And uncleaving is a painful process. It's possible. But it takes time, an extraordinary amount of effort, and pain. Lots of it. And that pain will come at somewhere or another and at some time or another. As the Gemara says in Masechet Yoma, there are certain sins that a person has to simply say, I'm sorry. Other sins that he has to say, I'm sorry, repent and wait for Yom Kippur. Other sins that he has to say, I'm sorry, wait for Yom Kippur and suffer. And then there's Chilul Hashem. We has to say, I'm sorry. Yom Kippur, suffer and die at some point. Whenever that point is that Hashem decides. The point is, when a person connects themselves to witchcraft, they're connecting themselves to the ultimate spiritual filth of the world that is very, very hard to unravel and remove yourself from. It's possible. I don't want to discourage anybody from that. I can assure you that it is possible, but it's not easy. And that's why when people say that this so-called Hasid convert was really learning Torah, was really... A from Yid, but yet he was practicing witchcraft from the time he was a child and hasn't stopped until today. I could assure you, he knows nothing about nothing when it comes to the world of Torah, other than a little bit about a lot of different things, just to be able to hold a conversation. You know, there are some people that sound smart. They use big words. They use a variety of subjects in order to make themselves sound like intellectuals, make themselves sound like they're knowledgeable, make themselves even sound like experts until the experts discover that they're fools but are very good at being con men. In the business world, you have that when people, instead of studying the material that's necessary in order to become experts and acquiring the experience that's required in order to become experts, these people study the dictionary. Either the dictionary for the entire language or the dictionary for a specific field. In order to use big words in conversation at such random places and in such fluent manner that it sounds like they're geniuses. Wow, he used this really big word, but nobody wants to admit that they don't actually understand what this big word means. But this guy, if he's using it as a day-to-day conversation, he must be a genius, he must be an expert, he must know more than I do. And it's very common where people literally... Study the dictionary just to sound smart without actually being smart. They'll bring out a paper. They'll bring out writings with a lot of intellectual things to say. But forget 
just so conveniently to mention that these smart things they have to say were really the thoughts and ideas of others much smarter and much more of an expert than I am. It's called plagiarism. Like, if you want to know more of the details of plagiarism, just look up the president of the Harvard University, who is a very good plagiarist, perhaps even an expert at plagiarism. Also, we're an expert at promoting anti-Semitism. But anyway, Rabotai, con men are not stupid people. They're very smart. But they're smart at being con men. They're smart at knowing just enough to make themselves dangerous. In the world of Torah, it's very easy to identify a con man if you know what you're talking about, if you know Torah, if you live Torah. You can't just know a few books. You can't just live it as part of your life. If it is your life, it's very easy to spot a con man. Why? Because you know what it looks like. You know what it sounds like. And therefore, when somebody says, I completed the whole shots, and I was, uh, you know, I was on my second uh, one, and uh, I think I was uh, second round, I think I was maybe on Masechet Shabbat, no one that actually studies the shots would talk like that. Why? Simple. If you study the shots, you know exactly where you hold. You know which Masechet, you know which daf. You even know which amud. Furthermore, if you're really learning shas, it forces you to change your life. Whether you like it or not. Why? Because it becomes part of you. But if you're reading it like a novel, if you're skimming it, if you're just briefly going over each page just enough to find a word that sounds familiar then of course you're never going to get to the point of abandoning your evil ways, adapting all the purity and good that you learned from there because you're not learning anything. But if somebody asks you a question, surely you can convince them that you're learning and you are part of it. In reality, you know that you're a con man. And if you don't, then you're even sicker than the average con man. Because most con men know that they're con men. If you ask why would somebody sponsor or convert such a person that deals with witchcraft, that has a wife that is at the very least seems like she committed pedophilia. The age gap, the time they met, according to the law of the land. Why would somebody sponsor that? For the same reason that they justify sponsoring just some average goy just to make a minyan. 
for the same reason they could justify watching movies that are forbidden. For the same reason they justify watching those movies on Shabbat in an open field surrounded by all types of other fans of these old movies. For the same reason they justify converting a bunch of other people that have no concept of what Judaism is. According to Judaism, the common denominator about all of that is wickedness. Wickedness, evil, that's what it is. A complete disregard to the Masoret, a complete disregard to the traditions of Judaism, the laws of Judaism, the sages of Judaism, and most importantly, the God of Israel. A complete disregard to all of it. Last but not least, when people ask, why do the Muslims hate the Jews? Didn't they have good relationship throughout all of history? Now, if you listen to the Muslims of today, they'll tell you, yeah, we always had a good relationship with the Jews until they took our land. But if you have this question asked of the Mufti, who was good friends with Hitler, and in fact, fought side by side with him and even built a concentration camp to kill Jews alongside Hitler. He won't answer the same way. In fact, if you ask the previous leaders of Morocco, of Tripoli, where my grandfather is, of different Jewish communities throughout all of history, you're also going to get a different answer. Because you're going to find well over a hundred different pogroms where the Muslims massacred the Jewish people. Whether it was in the early part of the first millennium, about 1400 years ago, where Muhammad massacred a bunch of Jews in Medina, or the massacres in Egypt at the year 629, where they exterminated 14 Jewish tribes, Arabian Jewish tribes, or whether you look at the Caliph 1,200 years ago, what happened in Yemen about 800 years ago, Morocco multiple times, Turkey, Baghdad, Algier, Maza, and Yemen. Or you even look at the earlier part of the 1900s, before modern-day Israel. There are many massacres of Jewish people, whether it's the massacres in Cairo in 1902, Alexandra in 1901 to 1907 where they would literally kill Jews in the streets. The pogrom in Casablanca in 1907. The Baghdadi Jews that were murdered by the Turks in 1917.
the first Jaffa riots in 1921, the massacres in Jerba, Tunisia, 1922. What happened in Syria, the pogroms there. You can find this all in history books. Or you can just go to jewishrefugees.org. You can see a list of over a hundred massacres of the Jewish people by the Muslim world. If you call that peace, what's war? Now, you ask yourself, why do they do all of this? And the answer is still the same. Evil. Evil is evil, and therefore it does evil things. Once we understand what evil is, we can then align our expectations accordingly and stop searching for peace as it's no longer possible. You can have a ceasefire, but not peace. There is no peace with evil. There's ceasefire, there's a break, there is a time where they're not going to attack you as openly, as abruptly as others, but always keep one eye open. Because the evil can return at any time. Because that's what evil things do. Rabotai Karim, the spiritual enemies of Am Yisrael are even more dangerous than the physical enemies of Am Yisrael. And the reason why Rabotai is because even if all of the physical enemies, the Irans and the Iraqs and the Egyptians and the Hamasniks and the Nazis and whoever else hates the Jews, even if they all gather together and they want to hurt Am Yisrael, they will never be allowed to do so unless we already fell for the attacks of the spiritual enemies. Why? Because the spiritual enemies they only get to win if we allow them to. They only get to attack if we open the door. They only get to succeed if we want them to, if we help them to. The spiritual enemies, whether it is from Christianity, witchcraft, other forms of idolatry, or simply immorality and other types of sinful behavior like dishonest business and terrible behavior and ethics. All of these types of spiritual enemies are only allowed to succeed if we allow them to. In fact, if we desire for them to. Because we think that somehow they'll let us live in the end. Just like the poor Jew 
who tried to save his son by using witchcraft. If you could identify the enemy and know that he's an enemy and will never be anything else, you've already won half the battle. And you can stop further damage from happening. Whether it's further damage from false converts or further damage from anything else that could happen to you, your family, or your community. You can stop it by first identifying the enemy and knowing that it will never be otherwise. It will never be not an enemy. Once you've done that, you've done yourself and whoever is around you a very, very big chesed, a very big kindness. But until you do, you should know you're responsible for everything that happens around you in your community based on your position. If you're simply a father or a mother of a few kids, and that's all, that's your responsibility as Hashem gave us the kids as alone, as the Torah says. If you're responsible for a synagogue, a community, you're responsible for them. Not just to tell them when to pray and where to donate. You're responsible for them. And therefore you're responsible from keeping away from all of these enemies, the spiritual ones, much more than the physical ones, because the physical ones only get permission to enter once the spiritual ones are already inside. If you are a possession of power to lead an entire segment, a city, a country, then you should know You were given an extraordinary stage, an extraordinary responsibility. You're responsible for everyone. Choose wisely. Thank you very much for learning with me. May HaKadosh Baruch Hu bless each and every single one of you with bracha, with atzlacha, with siyate dishmaya, to follow the right path of the Torah and the mitzvot and stay away from evil, whichever form it comes. Kol tuv, b'chav to everyone. And Be'ezot Hashem, we will learn again tomorrow. For any of you that want to help us with all the extraordinary things that the organization is doing, you could donate on Hashem.org. You could wire the money. You could send a copy of a check. You could uh, do a lot of different things, especially if you want to do before the end of the year, the Gregorian calendar year, cyclical year. But if you simply want to share this video and make the mitzvah, that's also good too. Call to Bachabatzlacha.